Do you want CE credit for listening to Medic Mindset? I'm excited to announce that it's now possible. Prodigy EMS has this episode and a bank of Medic Mindset episodes where you're able to easily convert your listen into CAPSIA approved CE. I've been waiting patiently to find the group of educators who align with the mission of Medic Mindset, and I've finally found our people. A link for the CE is in the show notes at medicmindset.com. Do you want to spend some time on ultrasound? No. Liar. <laughs> well, well, let me ask you some specific questions. Well, let me get. Uh, I want to talk. Uh, no, no, no. Oh, no, 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 no. Look, whose podcast is this? Is this your podcast or my? Oh, it's your podcast. That's right. Welcome to Medic Mindset. I'm Ginger Locke with another episode of the Thinking Series. I'm happy to report that the White Tiger is back. Doctor J.R. Pickett discusses how he thinks about abdominal pain. You want to talk about abdominal pain? I do want to talk about abdominal pain. So this is the 10th episode in the thinking series. And wow. you've done two already. One was syncope. Another was shortness of breath. Those have been listened to a lot. So I'm looking forward to people getting a lot out of this one. The very first one was thinking chest pain. And it was with a physician named Brandon Bleese. He spent a lot of time talking about abdominal pain because of the radiation into the chest. So I wondered if we might get into some chest stuff uh, with abdominal pain. Where I usually like to start with this is what's what's what are the bigs? What's the big dangerous stuff? I'll tell you, I had a patient in the emergency department. She comes in with epigastric abdominal pain, and she is just writhing in pain. I mean, she's about uh, maybe sixty years old, and she's so uncomfortable. You can see when I mean, you see the pain in her eyes. You press on her belly, and it's not that tender, but you know, it's right up in here. So spin a quick uh, 12 lead EKG. It's normal. Her vital signs are okay. She's a bit tachycardic because she's obviously in so much pain. I'm like, wow, okay, maybe she perforated an ulcer because that it, that looks that way. When you perforate an ulcer, it's like, you know, boom, sudden onset. Oof, really, really painful. So I sent her to CT scan and just had him do a quick non-con CT. And uh, she's in the scanner. Uh, they're like, hey, did uh, does she have a known thoracic dissection? And I was, Excuse me? Uh, and I'll, I'll be right there. And so I go over to CT scan, and sure enough, I mean, she's got this ascending, descending aorta dissection, and it's a you know, nightmare, a vascular nightmare. So from the CT scanner, I'm calling blood bank, ordering a whole bunch of units of blood, calling surgery, and we get her back to the room in the ER, and I talked to her. I said, okay, this is what we found, and we need to get some blood for you. We need to get you to surgery right away. And we're giving you some more pain medicines. We'd already given her some fentanyl to control her pain, but, uh, and we're going to do these things and we're, we're going to see what we can do to, to get you better. And as I'm telling her this, as she's looking at me, the lights go out and she dies right in front of me. And there's nothing to do to help mm-hmm. her. And it started with epigastric pain. That was mm-hmm. uh, that was the concern. So you have certain priority diagnoses with abdominal pain. Now the, it's such a black box, and you, you get pain referred from elsewhere. But you know things that we talk about. One is the vascular catastrophe, so the thoracic aortic dissection, the abdominal aneurysm, uh, then acute myocardial infarction or myocardial ischemia. I can uh, certainly refer pain to the belly and and uh, to the back. Ectopic pregnancies. A woman of childbearing age, in God we trust, all others get a pregnancy test. And this, of course, is is a huge thing. Any kind of a perforation of a viscous is uh, 
is death if it is not treated. And so a perforated ulcer, a perforated diverticulum, esophageal rupture, these are all big things with, with very big mortality rate if untreated. Even esophageal rupture has a high mortality rate mm-hmm. if um, even if treated. Um, obstruction is uh, a big thing. So a bowel obstruction, small bowel or large bowel obstruction. And uh, pancreatitis is another one. So hemorrhagic pancreatitis uh, can be deadly. And uh, lastly, ischemia. Uh, so uh, mesenteric ischemia, bowel ischemia. So you can have a heart attack. Well, the same thing can happen to your gut. And you can throw a clot and uh, impede the uh, blood flow to the gut. I didn't really know that until I started teaching. I don't remember learning about mesenteric ischemia, but I did once well, I started teaching. What's well, it's a terrible, terribly painful, and the uh, one of the key hallmarks of that diagnosis is it's pain out of proportion to exam. So they're they're having a lot of pain, and you press on them, and they're not all that tender. And you're like, wow, what's what's going on here? Not that tender. And sometimes it can be intermittent, so you can have mm. um, narrowing. So just like we have angina of the heart, mm-hmm. you can have angina of the gut. Mm-hmm. And then we do scans and all this stuff, and everything looks pretty normal, and it's. Oh. It's, it can be very challenging to diagnose. As I learn more about vascular issues with the gut, you know, you have such a thing as vascular migraines uh, mm-hmm. of the gut. So you have abdominal migraines. So, you know, kind of a similar sort of vascular phenomenon that occurs in the head can happen in the abdomen and can be a cause of recurrent abdominal pain. So I started you talking about mesenteric ischemia. Was that your was that your list though? Are we did we make it through it? That's my list of the priority diagnosis in in most abdominal pain i mean there's always like other stuff like a testicular torsion can cause abdominal pain but those are like the really big ones when i when you say i've got abdominal pain those are the ones Mm -hmm. i'm concerned about because they can be immediately life-threatening i mean appendicitis can be life-threatening if untreated but those things that i just listed those are things that can like kill you in front of you that was actually a note i made i wanted to ask so when something perforates is it the bleeding we're worried about or the peritonitis sepsis or yes, or both. Yes, the peritonitis and sepsis. We've got a little bit of time, but mm-hmm. surgically you need to go in to fix that and need to get the antibiotics on board. The uh, perforated ulcer um, or diverticulum. One of the issues is that those places where they tend to perforate tend to be right around vascular structures, and that, mm-hmm. that's where there's weakening in the wall. You can end up with this flood of blood. And mm-hmm. uh, the the perf diverticulum can perforate right on a vessel, and then you get this frank, bright red bleeding uh, by stool and, and f- a fair amount of it. Uh, with the ulcer that perforates right around that gastroduodenal artery or something like that, then this starts dumping blood into the gut. And in fact, can not only cause immediate pain and could cause vomiting of blood, but can also cause syncope. Uh, so it's not an uncommon diagnosis mm. you, it, when uh, when you've got that flood of blood into the stomach that mm-hmm. then it just uh, causes you to pass out. I was thinking about it in terms of so you've got bleeding, the vascular stuff as you call it, then you've got ischemia and then I think a third is sepsis. I kind of chunk it into three things. There are other life-threatening things in there too. Um, diabetic ketoacidosis for, for example. Mm-hmm. Folks that get DKA, then they get these ketones circulating and then they get an ileus, so, so this slowdown of transit. I've always wondered why they had yeah. abdominal pain. Yeah, they get the ileus and things stop moving. So ileus is like, there's obstruction, which is like it comes to a halt where there's something blocking the movement. There's ileus where the gut just kind of relaxes and it doesn't uh, doesn't move things along. You get that lack of peristalsis. Both are very painful. Both can cause mm-hmm. vomiting. You have kind of a similar clinical picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... This is why our DKAers tend to have uh, that belly pain. Okay. I think I want to know how do you approach these, right? So 
We know it's abdominal pain. Do you do a little bit of risk stratification early on where you figure out their age? Absolutely. So you have your high risk uh, you have your high risk populations. Anybody of extremes of age. So for the elderly, acute abdominal pain, 14% mortality somewhere around there. So it's actually a higher mortality rate than uh, an acute MI for somebody mm. who's old. So abdominal pain in the elderly is scary stuff. And what specifically um, is happening for them? They are much more likely to have these priority diagnoses and uh, mm. also the vascular issues and the MIs and also cancer uh, mm. is a big one. So mm. 11% of patients who present to the emergency department of elderly patients who present to the emergency department with abdominal pain are diagnosed with cancer within a year. Hmm. So... It's uh, it's a big thing. So even if they're not diagnosed at that emergency department visit, abdominal pain in the elderly is really scary. Likewise, for the very young, for uh, for babies, it's very scary because one, they can't give you a good history, uh, so they can't describe what's going on very well, yeah. uh, and. Uh, we tend to be very cautious about radiographic imaging in kids because we're like, oh, they're really young. I don't want to do ionizing radiation. And then we end up having diagnoses that get that delayed. So uh, a large number of patients who are you know, these young, young kids with uh, appendicitis, mm. they end up perforating before we diagnose it because well, we're hesitant to do the CAT scans. And fortunately, ultrasound is helping to change that uh, for us. Pregnant patients, likewise, a lot of these issues like cholecystitis and appendicitis, mm-hmm. they end up having delays in diagnosis mm-hmm. because we're hesitant to uh, to image them. And also when we do things like ultrasound, because you have this gravid uterus, it kind of moves things around mm-hmm. uh, and that can be tricky. So the extremes of age, uh, the pregnant Mm-hmm. Those with abnormal vital signs, like if you're showing any signs of hypotension, uh, then that's a big deal. That gets my hackles up there. Folks who are pale, who are diaphoretic when they've got belly pain, which that can be a response to a visceral stretch. You know, certainly, I mean, you know, if you've been hanging on to that bowel movement for a little bit too long and you, know, you decide it's time to go and you know, like, oof, you know, you have that sweat, the pale. So the visceral stretch can do it, even though that's obviously mm. well, generally not life-threatening um, <laughs> when uh, that occurs. But you're like, you know, oh, you know, I'm going from prevention to triage. I'm, I'm crowning here. <laughs> and you know, running to the closest restroom. All right. Um, but Thanks for the visual. That cause that. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's uh, some people are just listening to this podcast. I need them to have some sort of visual as to what's going on. People with severe pain with rapid onset of pain. That's mm. also big in my mind. So, you know, that's it. Extremes of age, abnormal vital signs, looking pale, diaphoretic, looking chalky, uh, severe pain with a rapid onset. Already, I'm thinking this is potentially something life threatening and and moving that direction. So the severe pain is a tough one, right? Because it is subjective, it's qualitative, it is personality dependent, it's culturally dependent. I have used pain to help me decide if somebody's sick or not sick. Is that right? I mean, I, I feel I felt a little bit like maybe it was just kind of novice stuff. Like I've never seen someone respond to pain like that. Certainly with uh, our patients who have chronic pain, they don't generally react the same way that somebody without chronic pain does. So they, mm-hmm. they get used to the pain, and so they react in different ways. They may not give us the appearance when they say, oh, I've got 9 out of 10 pain. They may not look like somebody to, to us that has 9 out of 10 pain. Like, you know, if I shatter my tibia or something, that's going to be like 9, 10, 11 out of uh, 10 pain. And they may not look that way. So 
I, I take them at their word for it yeah. when they say my pain is at this level. And, and that's if you can put it in the concept in terms that they can understand. So when you mm-hmm. say, I'll one to 10, what's your pain right now? Like, okay, that's a useless question. But mm-hmm. if you say, if we go from one to 10, where 10 is the worst possible pain you could imagine, like having a baby mm-hmm. or a kidney stone or shattering your leg or you know something like that, where would you put this pain right now? And I mean, you'll still have some folks like, oh, it's the worst. It's literally a 10. It's awful. Uh, like, hold on. I need to Instagram this. Um, <laughs> like, eh, okay, I don't really believe you. Uh, but the, uh, the, so the, the emotional reaction uh, mm-hmm. has a lot to do with it too because pain comes with an emotional reaction. Mm-hmm. Um, but also abdominal pain is frequently associated with psychiatric disorders. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's, uh, that's another piece of it. And chronic abdominal pain or recurrent abdominal pain can be an indicator of, uh, of some underlying psychiatric disease also. Mm-hmm. And that confounds our picture of it. Right. But if somebody says, yeah, you know, my pain's not so bad right now, like, that doesn't mean they necessarily don't have a priority diagnosis as you say there's so many different factors that go yeah. into that yeah it really it's just a full gamut all the way from very still very stoic you see a little bit of sweat beating up on their brow their upper lip but they're super still all the way to the um you know screaming so i'll share a little story with you uh, about what, three years ago almost four years ago i had appendicitis i had acute appendicitis and my family was out of town. They're visiting my in-laws. And so I was here alone. I'd just finished doing a couple of dives out of Lake Travis. Mm-hmm. And you know, I come home. I just feel kind of gassy. I'm like, oh, you know, I just feel uncomfortable. And uh, and it didn't really go away. And I'm like, oh, I just yeah. feel kind of meh, right? And I'm thinking, oh, maybe I ate some bad food or something. And I know it. I'm going to have diarrhea. And like that's okay. Like I got my iPad, I got Netflix. I can just kind of gut it out. Like it's all, it's yeah. gonna be all. It'll be all right. And I didn't. And then I threw up, which I almost never do. And then mm. I got a fever. And like, man, what you know? What's going on? Like for eight hours. This is what an astute emergency physician I am. Like eight <laughs> hours, I suffer with this before I finally examine myself. And I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, I know what this is. Um, mm. And I'm going to the hospital. So then I have to decide how am I going to the hospital. Uh, right? Like, am I going to buy ambulance? No, I'm not going to take an ambulance out of service. That, that seems kind of silly. Then I'm like, which hospital do I go to? Do I go to the one that where I work, where I know people because I know I'm going to go to surgery and somebody's going to start my Foley catheter. And I don't <laughs> know if I want the people I work with to, to, to do that. And mm-hmm. like, and it's like six o'clock in the morning. I've been up all night. I've been miserable. And I take an Uber to the, the ER and, and, uh, I, I'm there by myself in the waiting room. Like there's nobody else in there. A triage nurse sits me down, does the whole triage thing. My temperature is a hundred point something. And she asks me the question, like on a scale from one to 10, mm. what is your pain right now? And I, you know, like, like everything hit me all at once. The fact that I'm alone, I know I'm going to have surgery. I don't like that prospect. Um, and I'm like, just like all of these things, all these emotions just, and plus, the pain was bad enough at that point. It was completely preoccupying all of my thoughts. Right. I looked at her and just said, oh, it's an eight. <laughs> and this like one manly tear rolls down my cheek. And she's like, okay, pumpkin, let's get you into a broom. <laughs> let's get you taken care of. And uh, so that was uh, – that they, they took fantastic care of me and, and from everywhere, from the ER up to uh, the floor. But that was that was my experience, and now that question, I yeah. think of all the things that go into that question. Right. What do you? What can you tell me about appendicitis? Because that's a that's a big one on the list, right? So let's let's sit there for a second. 
the thing I'm most curious about is what are the risk factors? Because I can't seem to figure out like are maybe there aren't. Is it just some random? It's mostly random, to be yeah. honest. It's the most common surgical emergency in this country. Although, you know, cholecystitis is getting there too with this, you know, increase in obesity that we're having. But about 10% of the population gets acute appendicitis. Mm-hmm. It's a great imitator. Like the atypical presentation is the typical presentation. Uh, mm, the, right. I've had uh, students with appendicitis and they, they come back with all kinds of different presentation stories. Yeah, it's like the, the you want the periumbilical pain that gradually migrates to the right lower quadrant, right. Uh, associated with anorexia, maybe some nausea, uh, low grade fever, mm-hmm. and all of that stuff, and and that seems to be the exception rather than the rule. So it is kind of the great imitator. It's it can be difficult to diagnose at times. Uh, one thing though is in this country we tend to operate immediately on appendicitis. So it's like, oh, happy, you know, you go into the operating room, of course, super safe operation. Uh, mm-hmm. Your chances of a good outcome are outstanding. And it's just kind of bread and butter. Like surgeons are fantastic at it. And anesthesia, which everybody's a little nervous about anesthesia. It's actually one of the safest medical specialties out there. Our colleagues across the pond don't generally do that. So if the patient's not perforated, if they're not septic, if they're not like grossly abnormal vital signs, then they do antibiotics and cool that down and then operate on them at a later time. Mm -hmm. This is something that I teach for our special operations medics uh, on the military side is you've got somebody with acute appendicitis and you're on a mountaintop somewhere Mm -hmm. and evacuation is difficult. Well, start the antibiotics, get that on board and you might be able to buy them a whole lot of time uh, with that. So appendicitis is scary because untreated. Yes, it absolutely can be fatal. Uh, You know, a hundred years ago often was nowadays, of course it's very rarely. So, but, it can be, but that's usually associated with a delay in diagnosis mm-hmm. and not getting antibiotics, not uh, not managing that. Once you diagnose it, it's like, oh. Okay, so they plan to, to do an appendectomy. They just like to give antibiotics first to reduce the uh, bacterial burden. Well, the, the, beforehand. the, the appendix is a problem, uh, and that's, uh, but it is an infection right. first and foremost. So right. getting the antibiotics on board to cool that infection down, that inflammation, as that tissue gets inflamed, it swells, it gets kind of friable, it's uh, a little more difficult to work with surgically. Mm-hmm. So giving them the antibiotics to help settle that down is a good thing. So the, the, the primary problem is not that little appendicle that the primary problem is we've got an infection in there and surrounding it and, and will continue to grow and as that tissue becomes more friable then it can perforate now you're dumping gut contents full of bacteria right into the perineum yeah. and that's when you get really really sick and can die yeah causing peritonitis so can we talk a bit about peritonitis yes so it's important to talk a little bit about the different forms of pain that you have in in the abdomen so abdomen great big black box all these organs so you basically have three types of pain that you'll find there you know one is visceral pain and this is uh the nerves that are surrounding those actual organs it's not very precise so when we're talking somatic pain which is where you get inflammation of the the uh, parietal peritoneum or so the body wall you know those nerves are fairly sensitive and, and fairly specific so it's kind of like if i take a needle and i poke you on your arm that's more like somatic pain like you can tell me exactly where it was mm-hmm. that i did that uh, but if i take that needle and i poke you on your small bowel mm-hmm. then you have a hard time localizing that it just feels eh, you know kind of uncomfortable 
but as the inflammation grows, so say in appendicitis or diverticulitis, as that inflammation increases, then it starts irritating that body wall, and that's when it localizes right. to that uh, to that location. Mm-hmm. And then lastly, you've got referred pain. So mm-hmm. if you irritate the diaphragm, such as with uh, pneumonia, uh, mm-hmm. lower lobe pneumonia, you irritate that diaphragm, and then you can get some referred abdominal pain. I had a, a guy that came into the ER once as a young dude, comes in with left lower quadrant abdominal pain. And so I press around on him and he's like, eh, you know, a little bit tender, but you know, nothing perineal. I do a genital exam and the dude's got a testicular torsion so that mm-hmm. that testicle had twisted on its blood supply and it was in danger of dying off if we didn't fix that immediately. Mm-hmm. So uh, that referred that pain up into the abdomen and nothing to do with his abdomen. Right. So those three types of pain, Visceral pain may be just kind of vague and nonspecific and, mm-hmm. and that as that and that inflammation of that peritoneum goes, then then it gets worse. Now when you've got frank peritonitis, this is somebody that they don't like to move. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a a usual differentiator between like, you know, acute like gut issue versus maybe a kidney stone. Like kidney stones, they can't stop moving. They're oh god, right. you know, and, you know, they're moving constantly, trying to find that comfortable position. The abdominal issue is they they don't want to move it. As you move them, then it irritates that. Mm-hmm. You can use this to your advantage though. As you shake or bump or anything like that, then you get a reaction. So this is where your percussion comes in when you're examining somebody. We get taught about rebound tenderness, right? Mm-hmm. You press real hard onto their belly and then you lick it really fast and see how quickly they can jump off of the table. But it's not terribly specific and, and you can induce that in a, in a healthy person. Hmm. Percussion tenderness, however, is very specific for peritoneal irritation. So you just taps on somebody's belly. It's very non-threatening. It mm-hmm. usually doesn't cause them a lot of pain. And so you can maintain some rapport with the patient when you do that, but it can irritate that. Other things is I'll ask him, how was the car ride over to the ER today? Like, mm-hmm. how was it? Like, oh man, like every bump was just killing me. Mm-hmm. So that gives me a little hint. With little kids who have a, a more difficult time articulating that kind of stuff, uh, I'll say, tell you what, jump off of the, I want you to hop off of the uh, the stretcher here. I don't mean jump, like stand up on the stretcher and take a <laughs> flying leap. Um, but just, you know, sitting, I want you to hop up here. Um, and if they, if they can't, if, if they don't do that or they, they stand up slowly and, um, I'll be like, um, here, let me have you just jump, uh, mm-hmm. just jump once. And the, the kid with peritonitis, like from their appendicitis, like they'll jump and then, uh, and then stand up slowly. Uh-huh. So, so like when they kind of, when their heels yeah. hit the ground, like that irritates that. And so that, that can be a, a clue that, that helps. And again, you're not putting your hands on the kid and hurting them. So it doesn't necessarily damage that rapport that you've built with the kid. Yeah. Other things like doing that heel tap mm-hmm. sign. So the, their legs are extended. You just kind of whack on the bottom of their heel with, uh, with your fist or I'll bump the stretcher. Right. Uh, come and do it and just kind of bump it with my knee and say, hey, did that did that irritate you? Did that hurt your belly at all when I did that? So how will you pick which one of those to do just for a standard adult? Do you just kind of do them all just to give them all, you know? Yeah, I do them all. They're all super quick. Yeah. Like, so it, it's uh, getting a good exam is very important. And a lot of times we just sort of give kind of lip service to the exam. It's just like, all right, mash, 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 mash. Okay, we're done. Uh, so we don't really pay that attention to inspection first, auscultation, percussion, palpation. And I go in that order for a couple of reasons. One, when you palpate, you may move some gas around, so you, it may change the sounds that you hear. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'll inspect first because it's 
totally like non-threatening and mm-hmm. you can see if there's any you see if there's any any uh, cap at medusa or a uh, gray turner sign or um, anything like surgical that surgical scars good um, conversation starters yeah cuz surgical scars like where did you get this uh, where did you, you get this big scar here um <laughs> that with a guy like where did you get the scar here oh i got shot oh okay and, you know, mm-hmm. moving on here the chest tube scar where did you get this from oh yeah i got shot i'm like you need to find better friends my friend <laughs> you start with the inspection then you do the aus- uh, auscultation listen for those uh, those gurgling sounds and sometimes it may take a little while but that gives you a clue like if you have a silent belly then that means there could be some inflammation in there you can get an uh, an ileus due to peritonitis and things aren't moving along so that's a good clue or you get a lot of like high-pitched gurgling and it leads mm-hmm. you in the direction of an uh, of an obstruction so then you move on to your percussion you tap gently on uh, on your fingers and put your finger on there and just just tap on that knuckle and that takes some practice to get it well. You can hear if there's a ton of gas in there, you just dunk, dunk, dunk as you're, uh, as you're tapping on them. You also, you're, you're looking for that irritation when you, uh, when you do it. My daughter loves this. She's like, daddy, can you check and see if I have gas? And she wants me to percuss her whole belly. And, yeah. And it's just well, percussive therapy feels uh, good. It's like little. Yeah. And then lastly, getting to palpation and, and feeling for, uh, feeling for masses, feeling for organomegaly. Although I don't typically expect a paramedic to be able to pick up like an, uh, an enlarged liver and a large spleen. Like if yeah. you can, great. That's fantastic. But mm-hmm. at least getting some, getting some information there and not like, you know, like, mashing really hard on mm-hmm. you know super super fast um there are some special signs the the psoas sign uh where you're basically extending the hip and you can see youtube videos on how to do this um we're extending that and so the appendix may be retrocecal so it may be behind it and so it's laying right up against that psoas right. uh, and as you stretch the psoas muscle it rubs right up against that mad appendix um uh, the obturator sign so the appendix is really down laying up against that obturator muscle you take the leg and kind of twist it a bit you can mm. stretch that and, and mm-hmm. irritate the the appendix that's way down there in the pelvis the murphy sign which a lot of people think is just right upper quadrant tenderness and it's not it's you know you press on that right upper quadrant kind of you know, g- gently press in but uh g- gently but firmly i guess um and then tell them take a big deep breath and when they take a breath if they if they're taking a breath and they halt that breath because of pain where you're pressing, mm-hmm. then that's a positive uh, Murphy sign. Gallbladder. Uh, gallbladder. Uh, gallbladder is what you're thinking with that one. CVA tenderness, so percussing the kidneys in the back. So mm-hmm. uh, a lot of people think the kidneys are lower than they are. I was going to say, like, describe where are the kidneys? Because so, people think they're down low, right? Right, and, and they're Myself not. Myself included they're, for a long time. They're actually protected by the rib cage. So uh, that bottom part of the rib cage, right behind that, is, or right you know, deep to that uh, rib cage in the back, mm-hmm. is where you'll find the kidneys. So I thought you, they weren't protected by ribs. That's how people get the kidney shot in martial arts. Well, I mean, the kidney shot still hurts. And I can tell you that definitely for patients who've had pyelonephritis or have had an obstructive stone, when I do CVA tenderness, you put your hand on their back and just kind of thump it with your wrist or with your, uh, with your fist. And uh, you're percussing it and trying to get that that irritation out of it. And we call that CVA or costovertebral angle Mm -hmm. tenderness. So costo, rib, vertebra, spine. Uh, That angle between those two, the kidneys sit right there. So... Mm You tap on that on, on both sides. And I put my hand there so it doesn't look like I'm like actually punching the patient yeah. in the kidneys because nobody likes that. 
good. I'll add that in. I've always <laughs> just been giving them little taps. Yeah, yeah. Put your hand there, and it, you still get the same thing, but it doesn't look like you're abusing the patient. <laughs> okay. Um, then uh, lastly, uh, uh, Rovsing sign is another one. Mm. So when you press on the left lower quadrant, there's pain in the right lower quadrant. Mm. So we can see that in appendicitis uh, as well. Oh. All of these tests, they take seconds to right. do. So you know, getting that good exam, there's really no excuse not to do that. And then, of course, ultrasound. So we've got ultrasound on all of our ambulances now. In abdominal pain, like unless you're a like, really experienced ultrasonographer, you're not going to pick up appendicitis with with that. But Because of all those different places it can hide that you were describing? Well, and there's specific findings to it. And, and oh, okay. it very much is operator-dependent. So in adult hospitals, they tend to not be as comfortable with abdominal ultrasound for, for appendicitis. But you can find things like you have a young woman that comes into the emergency department in shock. You do your your ultrasound. It's like, oh, there's free fluid down here in the pelvis. What do I think? I'm thinking this is a ruptured ectopic, and this is something that needs immediate surgical management. And that also changes our resuscitation, of course, as well, because they're bleeding, mm-hmm. not third spacing. So the, the ultrasound can be helpful there as well. But I find the most helpful thing is just a good a good story, uh, mm-hmm. good history, like that OPQRST, the onset provocation quality radiation uh, severity and time of onset. Uh, but there are other few things and we teach the OPRQ, OPQRST for everything, but things like, do you feel this urgency to defecate? Do you, this urgency of stool, which you can see that in inflammation of the colon, but you can also see that in vascular disasters. Mm-hmm. And usually it's a bad prognostic sign. Mm-hmm. If somebody with a, um, a AAA or a thoracic dissection says, yeah, I feel like I really got to poop, then that means you're dissecting into that, uh, that inferior mesenteric artery mm-hmm. and, uh, or blocking that off, and, and that's bad news. So that's something you would see in mesenteric ischemia as well, just you, evacuation. Uh, you could see that in mesenteric ischemia, which is why like the tradition is like, oh, well, mesenteric ischemia you know the things stop working and you don't have diarrhea like that's not true because one of the first reactions when you get ischemia is to empty the gut so Mm -hmm. that uh that urgency helps if you've got a lot of inflammation you've got uh, diverticulitis or really bad colitis then that feeling of tenesmus that constant need to uh, to defecate Mm -hmm. is uh is something can we sit with the pathophys for that for a second so that is that because of ischemia to the small intestines colon or is, or is that just just as if someone was hypotensive from anything like if they had lost a lot of blood or anaphylaxis or is this something or is it specific ischemia to that organ or just hypoperfusion in general well it's ischemia to that organ but mm-hmm. remember when you're in shock your body starts shutting down uh, perfusion to uh, places that it doesn't need it right now. So if you're going into shock, then you're trying to preserve the heart, the brain, that, and, and you start shutting down uh, the perfusion to other places. But then if you don't have enough to perfuse, then, yeah, your gut's going to get ischemic. And this is something that we see in patients, in septic patients, trauma patients that spend quite a while in shock. Mm-hmm. They end up with ischemic gut and mm-hmm. the gut can die off. And, you know, unfortunately at that point, it's you know, pretty much the skin of your life has been woven. Um, so that uh, that can happen specifically with ischemia there, but also can be just sort of global. Mm-hmm. Now, it's still indicating ischemia to that area. Right. Uh, but like global hyperperfu- hypoperfusion can cause that as well. While we're doing physical exam discussion, before we talk too much about ultrasound, I'm so glad that you spent a little time hovering around the physical exam. Um, what is guarding? 
Uh, so guarding is, it, it's kind of what it, it, it sounds like where the patient, there's involuntary and there's voluntary guarding. Okay, so yeah. when you press on their abdomen and you, and you do so in a compassionate and you know, slow, gentle, uh, like pushing in the abdominal muscles tighten up to protect it from doing that. Now you may see some abdominal muscle rigidity overlying an area of ischemia. So, or not ischemia, but uh, inflammation rather. Uh, so you have like that appendicitis and now it's, it's inflamed everything around it and it causes tetany in those muscles and you go to press on it and it's uh and it's hard as a board in that area or you've got pus just draining into the uh into the peritoneum or abdominal contents draining into the peritoneum so you get global peritonitis and the whole belly is just hard Mm -hmm. and it's just rigid so that's guarding it's involuntary Uh, involuntary if if you've got that spasm that's causing it but then it's voluntary if you press on them and they they react Mm -hmm. uh then that's uh voluntary guarding and what what is why is it important to differentiate those two a voluntary guarding can be just somebody that like it's painful and they react in that way especially if if you are indelicate in your Uh exam but if the person has involuntary guarding, then that means there's probably a substantial amount of inflammation beneath wherever those muscles are, or if it's the whole thing. And that's somebody who's potentially in trouble. They've got peritonitis. Mm -hmm. So peritonitis, inflammation, usually due to infection of the whole peritoneum, and that needs immediate treatment. You need to, one, fix the problem, but two, antibiotics and fluid resuscitation and all of that, because they can get septic and die very quickly. Uh, A few other things. Anorexia. I don't mean like the chronic eating disorder for mental health issue. I mean, the person does not want to eat. Like they just don't feel mm-hmm. like they have an appetite. How's your appetite been? It's a simple question you can ask folks. And if they've got something going on here, anorexia, you tend to see that with like infectious processes in the gut, like appendicitis or diverticulitis and inflammation. You don't necessarily see that with a lot of other diseases. So that's an important piece. Like eh, their appetite's really fallen off the last day or so. Changes in bowel habits. So you may defecate once every few days. You may defecate three times a day. Whatever's normal for you. Is there a departure from that normal pattern mm-hmm. uh, that you have? Are there any genitourinary symptoms? Testicular pain, radiating pain into the vagina. So things like you know, in women, kidney stones or or ovarian issues, ovarian torsion, that kind of thing can be problematic. Testicular torsion or uh, epididymitis or chitis, uh, these things can uh, can cause some belly pain as well. And then extra abdominal symptoms, so shortness of breath, chest pain, uh, back pain, things like this may give you a clue as to where you need to go with, uh, with that. Additionally, menstrual history. Um, mm-hmm. When was the last period? Was it normal for you? Was it normal flow, normal duration? Uh, how did it go? A lot of women have just normally irregular periods. And of course, that uh, that en- ends up being a challenge. That's where your ultrasound comes in. That can be helpful. What's their surgical history? You mentioned like looking, is there any scars here? You've had anything done? Because that it gives you an increased risk of obstruction. I read just a bit before this episode, and I read that 70% of bowel obstructions are from adhesions. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so mostly only get adhesions from previous surgery, right? Or an injury or something? Previous surgery, previous injury, previous infection. Mm, I can do that. Infection, yeah. Uh, so, you know, the other thing is uh, alcohol uh, use. So, of course, does it cause gastritis, inflammation of the stomach, cause pancreatitis, and potentially serious ones. But here's another one that's cropped up recently is THC, uh, marijuana use. So when Colorado legalized marijuana, the ER visits for cyclical vomiting syndrome skyrocketed. Mm-hmm. 
we see this a lot. Like the 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 weed that folks are smoking now is not the same weed as like Cheech and Chong, right? Mm-hmm. Much stronger, much higher THC content. While folks say, well, marijuana is helpful for nausea from uh, cancer and chronic disease and so forth. Well, yeah, there are some anti-emetic properties to it, but there are also pro-emetic properties to it as well. So cannabis hyperemesis syndrome, Mm -hmm. and we did a podcast on on that. If the patient says, yeah, I get this belly pain, I I get a lot, and sometimes I take a hot shower and it feels better, that can be a big clue that uh, you need to ask them about uh, drug history and Mm -hmm. and ask if if maybe uh, THC is part of their life. The second challenge is getting them to believe you because usually folks who uh, use THC a lot can never believe that it would harm them and make them feel sick. Family history, uh, certain things like diverticulitis, uh, diverticular disease, colon polyps, they can run in families, cancer, of course. We talked about psychiatric disorders, but here's a big one I want people to take home. 25% of women of childbearing age who come to the emergency department with abdominal pain are victims of domestic violence. Mm. When you have uh, that patient who's got belly pain, go down that road with them, especially if things aren't adding up with the history of the belly pain. Mm -hmm. Uh, Ask them about that. Hey, do you feel safe at home? You get a good history without their domestic partner there. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is uh, a thing. And and in fact, in our uh, homosexual communities, domestic violence is more common. Mm -hmm. So, Ask that question if you've got somebody, if it's recurrent or if it doesn't match up. And sometimes that's their way out of a bad situation. If they had a fight that was going bad or a situation like they can see things are kind of going down the wrong way, they may complain of belly pain and mm-hmm. say, okay, I've got to go to the hospital. And that's their way out of a bad situation. So mm-hmm. if, if you can clue into that, you might be able to uh, interrupt a, a catastrophe and uh, you know, some terrible uh outcome and and get them the resources they need yeah if i think about the gallbladder having kind of unique history with we teach the five f's it's a flatulent female 40s fatty foods there's a fifth one i don't remember fertile um yeah what does that mean uh, they've had a baby before no it just means they were like like somewhere in the childbearing age um uh, but yeah fatty foods but uh fluffy also so obesity is Mm -hmm. a is a Mm -hmm. risk factor for cholecystitis and that's why it is becoming more common uh, because we are seeing these rising obesity rates it can also be a challenging diagnosis because it can be intermittent eat something and the stone drops into that uh, that neck of the gallbladder and blocks it up and now it can't squeeze, can't go anywhere. And uh, it's, it, it can be very challenging to diagnose. On a rotation uh, recently, I saw an ER resident do ultrasound of the gallbladder and they left pretty confident that the gallbladder was not the problem. Mm-hmm. Is that because ultrasound's pretty conclusive? In uh, in certain disease processes, yes. Like the ultrasound can get you a quick, non-invasive, painless fairly decent picture at a lot of structures. It's the diagnostic modality of choice for certain things. So you've got uh, a gallbladder, then ultrasound is is how we do that. If you've got issues with the ovaries, uh, finding the blood flow and so ovarian torsion, ultrasound really tells you a whole lot there. And it gives you an early clue if you have something like an abdominal aortic aneurysm. Mm-hmm. So you can see this huge calorie aorta and say, ooh, okay, that, that clues me in. Even though a CT scan ultimately gives you a much better picture, but you can do a bedside ultrasound on a patient that you're resuscitating and get an idea of what's going on uh, with them there. So I love ultrasound for diagnosis. And uh, ultrasound is one of those things like you can go further and further down the rabbit hole. Like, right. 
I do a lot of ultrasound in the field, but I am not at the level of, I mean, I even think some of the residents coming out now come out with such great ultrasound skills. They can find appendicitis and um, they're really good with the gallbladder and they said, I'm I'm pretty good with the gallbladder. I'm really good with fast exams and I'm pretty good with cardiac, but there's so much other things there. I mean, it's sort of like I can play tennis, uh, but don't put me and Venus Williams on the same (laughs) court because yeah. you know, I'm not going to measure up at all. Ultrasound gives you so much and you just carry it around and you have a butterfly and, and so it plugs into my iPhone and throw it on there and, and gives me a good picture. But it can give you clues as to as the big deals that are happening right off the bat. So throw that ultrasound on there and you see free fluid in mm-hmm. the, the peritoneal area. You see a giant aorta. Uh, you see a baby in the uterus. You know Something, something like that. It gives you a quick picture without harming the patient. Mm-hmm. and uh, you just make that part of your exam, which is, I think, how emergency physicians now are doing. They're just roaming the halls with an yeah. ultrasound. Just one more um, data point. Uh, yeah, it is, and it can give you some good pictures, and it can help you quickly rule out certain things as well, mm-hmm. like that abdominal aortic aneurysm or that, that uh, gallbladder that's an issue. However, there are limitations. So uh, the abdominal aortic aneurysm, when that ruptures, tends not to rupture intraperitoneally. So you won't necessarily see fluid on the ultrasound mm. when you ultrasound somebody that's got a AAA. So Where does it go? It, uh, it's behind. It's retroperitoneal. Okay. So it just doesn't you know, flow around the various organs mm-hmm. uh, in the uh, belly. I mean, it can, but so I need it doesn't have to. Pause you for a sec because Dr. Abraham texted. Oh, God. She wanted me to ask how intraperitoneal versus retroperitoneal presents differently. I guess, I don't know if she said organs within or bleeding within. Intraperitoneal blood will show up on your, or fluid, will show up on your ultrasound. Retroperitoneal, not necessarily. Retroperitoneal issues, you you can get a lot more uh, referral to the back, uh, referral to the buttocks, referral to to the perineal area. Uh, and that is that blood kind of tracks back there. And you're thinking about aorta when, when uh, that sort of thing happens or kidneys also. Uh, so if you rupture a kidney, that bleed is going to be retroperitoneal or that fluid is going to be retroperitoneal. Won't necessarily pick that up on, uh, on your fast exam. You may pick that up on a dedicated ultrasound of the kidneys. Okay. Um, same thing with the aortic aneurysm. You may, you will pick that up on just looking at the caliber of the aorta as it uh, goes through the belly. So why is the belly so terrible at telling us where the pain is? It's because there's not many nerves in there. It's that visceral versus somatic uh, sensation. So you have the uh, the gut, which sort of develops off of this one stalk and kind of twists and, and turns and everything. And, and the, the innervation goes with that. Uh-huh. So unlike the rest of us where you develop these oh. dermatomes. And, it's uh, just like these, one long nerve uh, along the thing? Well, not, not really, but... It, but like all of the gut just evolves out of this one structure and then uh, and then twists mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and uh, so they're just not very intelligent as to where exactly the pain is mm-hmm. and so that's why somatic pain mm-hmm. is is much more specific visceral pain is really hard to, to pick up exactly where that issue is uh, and so that's where like when somebody comes in with abdominal pain and you don't get that diagnosed, uh, then a bit of watchful waiting will help to to tease out what the problem is. So maybe that's a question, a follow up question is: Is it important to know what organs affected? Well, it is because a lot of these are surgical emergencies, so they need to get urgent referral to surgery and and to get the problem taken care of. Like the pus got to come out. Um, 
tumor got to come out, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. whatever that is. So, uh, so figuring that out early on is important. But here's the thing. 50% of people who come to the emergency department with abdominal pain leave without a definitive diagnosis. We're mm-hmm. not that great at, mm-hmm. at diagnosing that because it is so complex. You've got so many different systems that are involved. Like that aren't aren't even in the abdomen. It's referred from somewhere else. Right. You know? So like it's the DKA. Uh, yeah, like the DKA um, or the pneumonia or you know the myocarditis or pericarditis. Uh, these uh, these other things. So it's it's extremely challenging to diagnose abdominal pain, even when you have the full breadth of diagnostic capabilities at your disposal. What are the risk factors for abdominal aortic aneurysm? Abdominal aortic aneurysm. You know, here's another thing I want to uh, that that I want to get out there is a lot of folks don't understand the difference between a thoracic aortic dissection and an abdominal aortic aneurysm. Okay. So thoracic aortic dissection. This is where you have a little tear in the intima of the of, uh, aorta, and blood starts dissecting between the layers of the aorta, uh, which is by itself extremely painful, and it can travel the length of the of the aorta and then it finds a way out. It tears through the outside and then you're actively bleeding. And unfortunately, if that happens, if you're not on the operating room table, when that happens, then the outcomes are extremely poor. The abdominal aortic aneurysm is a widening of the aorta. So Mm -hmm. you can have this sort of global widening of part of the aorta, or you can have what's called a saccular aneurysm where you have just a bulging of one part of the wall. Mm -hmm. The saccular aneurysms are more worrisome because they are more likely to rupture as opposed to the sort of global widening. Mm -hmm. Now, people can walk around with the uh, aortic aneurysms and it's not that big a deal usually if it's less than five centimeter caliber mm-hmm. then we don't do anything with it we just uh we just manage their cholesterol and hypertension and so forth uh, so we manage risk factors once you go above five centimeters then your chances of a rupture start going up and those are things that we may have to manage interventionally like either with surgery or now which is more common I- I- than it used to be is endovascularly so thread a stent and a b- um, balloon up in there and reinforce that aorta that way. So much, much less morbidity with that. And, and it's a, it's an easier procedure for the patient to tolerate than you know, opening them up and putting a graft in there. So the thoracic aortic dissection is typically as a result of hypertension, whereas the abdominal aortic aneurysm is usually cholesterol and vascular disease oh, that, I didn't uh, know that gets in there. So I thought like it was the, hypertension. No, it's. I mean, hypertension is bad for it, but yeah. it's uh, it's that cholesterol that gets into there and and uh, starts kind of weakening that, and you get this you get this dilation yeah. of, uh, of the aorta. That makes more sense. I mean, the thoracic aorta, you've got all this pressure right coming out initially, <laughs> whereas the abdominal, it's just. I mean, it's still high pressure, but. Yes, I mean you don't want a hole in either one. <laughs> you don't want one in the thoracic aorta or the abdominal aorta. Uh, I'm and so if glad you I asked that one, question it's, because it's I've I've often thought it was just lifelong untreated hypertension, but you're telling me cholesterol or aging, uh, cholesterol and vascular disease, a- aging, um, and they now don't get me wrong; those risk factors tend to run together. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah. it, it, certainly there's no reason you can't have both. And then the mesenteric ischemia, I want to sit there for a bit because I'm not sure a lot of people have heard of that before today. Or I think to know, that I know that AFib is a risk factor for that. Is that true? Yes. I mean, so think of mesenteric ischemia uh, like an MI or a stroke of the gut. 
you throw a clot into the vascular supply there mm-hmm. and shut off that supply and then the gut gets ischemic, it dilates out. And if it stays that way, then it's friable, it perforates and, and truly awful stuff. And if it's a really proximal obstruction, like you clot off the takeoff point of the superior mesenteric artery, then that's going to be a terrible outcome if that goes untreated. So you can also have cholesterol deposits that cause a narrowing of that, and that's where you get that mesenteric angina. Somebody eats, and then they get this really bad abdominal pain a little while later. Like, all oh, the imaging is normal. It's like, God, what's going on with this? And then so we do, uh, we'll do imaging with some contrast or some sort of vascular study of the belly to try to eke out that diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Again, pain out of proportion to exam is a big indicator for mesenteric ischemia. Mm-hmm. So it's like they look just miserable and you press on them and like, oh, it's not that tender. You know, It's a scary thing because it is so difficult to diagnose. And you know, people may have recurrent uh, intermittent mesenteric ischemia mm-hmm. and they just you know, go on and they don't get answers. And it's, it's, it's really unsatisfying and really not fun. Am I is on my list, upper quadrant pain? Uh, so, I mean, really like you know, anywhere in the upper abdomen, uh, you can have that, especially if you've got the inferior MI, so it's laying right al- along that diaphragm and, and can tick it off and, and uh, or just refer down into into that area. So uh, anybody with abdominal pain, do a 12 lead EKG. Just, uh, Any abdominal pain or you think? Well, upper? okay, like a nine-year-old with abdominal pain probably doesn't need a 12 lead EKG. But if they fit, just get a 12 lead EKG yeah. with, with uh, belly pain. Now, if they have like truly like right lower quadrant of abdominal sure. pain in a 23-year-old, no, they don't need a 12 lead EKG. They do eventually because they're going to go to the operating room, but let us worry about that in the I hospital. this kind of guideline wants of anywhere belly button to nose pain. Belly button and nose, do a 12 lead EKG. Uh, it's so easy for us to do now. We're so experienced. Yeah. Like yeah, Paramedics are doing them all day long. Like, you just get it. Like, it's, it's easy. You know, spend the 50 cents on the mm-hmm. leads and just do it. Perforated ulcer, are we talking gastric ulcer, duodenal ulcer, both, or more ulcers than that? Yes. Uh, so, um, I mean, you can ulcer anywhere really uh, on the GI tract, but uh, esophageal, gastric, duodenal. Um, you know, even you can get ulcers duodenal. in the colon, uh, duodenal, duodenal, um, uh, whatever it's, it's, it's in the gut. Um, so, uh, but I mean, you can get a colon, you can get it, you can get an ulcer anywhere, but it tends to be usually upper GI tract that, uh, that that occurs. So again, it, you ulcerate a lot of times right around vascular structures and that's bad news, or you perforate. Uh, through and now you've got gastric content spilling into an area that is normally sterile and mm-hmm. that's bad news we've talked about testicular torsion ovarian torsion doesn't get enough press i don't think it, because it's so difficult to to diagnose sometimes because it can be intermittent ultrasound and you need to kind of catch it when it when it's twisted and when that flow is not going to that ovary just, just like a testicular torsion you've got a limited period of time that that ovary can go without a blood flow and then you're losing the ovary and that affects their fertility and that ovarian torsion also is incredibly painful i think there are a lot of patients that you know young women who come in with this this horrible pain from the ovarian torsion and again pain out of proportion to exam mm-hmm. and i think they get blown off a lot of the times like, oh, you're just being dramatic and like, no it's horribly painful and, and so it's one of those things that that we're looking for uh when we're doing the the female with abdominal pain workup uh which includes gu as well as the usual surgical stuff that's one of the things that we're looking for. We're looking for that. We're looking for a topic pregnancy, uh, you know, because they 
ovarian torsion can be immediately threatening to fertility. The ectopic pregnancy can be immediately life-threatening. And uh, pelvic inflammatory disease, mm-hmm. also bad infections. They can affect permanent uh, fertility because you can get scarring in the mm-hmm. fallopian tubes. You can get septic and die. So the, the PID, which is typically caused by gonorrhea or chlamydia, so it's usually a sexually transmitted disease that can cause that. And the additional piece with that is that uh, a lot of patients with PID are not really forthcoming because they're embarrassed. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're embarrassed to say, I've, I've had some vaginal discharge and uh, this, or my uh, partner just got uh, diagnosed with uh, a sexually transmitted disease or something like that. It's They feel it's embarrassing. And so sometimes they're not forthcoming with, with some of that history. All those things can be uh, terribly worrisome. It's an additional challenge as an emergency physician when you're diagnosing this stuff, because when you call OB with somebody with a, particularly if you don't have a definitive diagnosis and you've got, you've got a young woman who's in significant abdominal pain. You're like, I'm not sure what this is, but I think she needs to be admitted to, uh, to do, uh, serial exams. And, uh, and I'm worried. Well, OB says, no, it's not GYN. It's got to be surgical. Call surgery. And you call surgery like, well, she's a young woman, so it must be gynecological. And so call GYN. And you sort of end up in this mm. this match between the two of them. Mm-hmm. The last thing on my list is black widow spider envenomation. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, you know, having just done a podcast with Spence Green about uh, about snakes uh, so black widow spiders uh yeah they can cause uh, peritoneal signs because so that uh um electrodectus <laughs> spiders uh can can cause the 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 venom can cause the, this uh, abdominal rigidity and and uh, can be extremely painful and more than one person has shown up in the emergency department with abdominal pain that got tagged by a black widow spider, those bites tend to be not terribly painful, and so they may not know mm-hmm. that that's what uh, that that's what happened to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I'm going to throw tetanus in there too. That tetanus causes abdominal pain. Fortunately, we we vaccinate very well against tetanus. Tetanus is a horrible disease. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't want to see somebody die of tetanus. It's terrible. Wow, you, you know, you got a rigid abdomen. You got peritonitis, um, and uh, it's like no, they're totally unvaccinated, and they cut themselves near dirt and mm-hmm. uh there you go but yeah black widow spider is something you, that you can think this is why you don't mess with spiders uh, there was there's a couple of kids that ended up in the hospital with black widow spider envenomation because they wanted to be spider-man so they like yeah. found a black widow spider and let themselves get bitten by it and it's like oh actually it sucks like because you get like diaphoretic and you get the belly pain is it's kind of miserable when <laughs> when that happens like all oh, these poor kids I also want to say, though, yeah. we, we got to be careful of certain populations, right? We talked about geriatrics, mm-hmm. uh, so a uh, much higher mortality rate because they just tend to have more worrisome stuff uh, and they, you know, the cancers and the vascular issues and so forth. Pediatrics, uh, because they can't give you a good history, also consider victims of abuse as well. Um, also, I want to throw something in there for the immunocompromised, you know, folks with not just HIV, but who have AIDS, you know, have untreated HIV uh, and... Um, but any other immunocompromised patients, whether they have some genetic immunocompromise or they're on chemotherapy or something like that, they can have much more worrisome things that present in a more with a more indolent course uh, or less worrisome presentation because they don't mount this huge response to the peritonitis or, or mm-hmm. what's going on with them. And also vulnerable to other infections that tend to be a lot less common in mm-hmm. healthy mm-hmm. immunocompetent adults. 
the cryptosporidium and uh, there's uh, parasitic infections, uh, which can be problematic. Just watch out for those special populations. So treatment, stabilize the patient. Uh, so volume resuscitation, if necessary. Now, it depends on what the problem is. So if you think that the patient has a bleeding issue, don't give them a bunch of salt water. Don't give them a bunch of crystalloid. You know, in that case, they need blood. Uh, but if it is more of a third spacing issue, a sepsis issue, you know, these infections, these intradominal infections, then crystalloid, balanced crystalloid, preferably. So uh, you're looking at uh, lactated ringers, plasmolite, uh, normosol, isolate something along those lines normal saline really like the more evidence we get it's just not a great drug for mm -hmm. people but if they've uh, if they've got a bowel obstruction there's a lot of fluid that they've lost through vomiting there's right. a lot that's in the lumen of the gut so you get bowel obstructions that, that the lumen of the gut swells and so third spaces traps a lot of fluid in there so appropriately volume stabilize uh, volume resuscitate them stabilize them manage their nausea manage their pain uh, for pain, I don't care what you do. Uh, do do fentanyl, do Dilaudid, do morphine, do uh, ketamine. Okay, but you know, probably not your first go-to unless they're really unstable as far as pain control goes. And nausea management. So if you're using Odansetron, which seems to be the most uh, popular thing now, also promethazine or prochlorperazine. Now, the haloperidol and droperidol are really good nausea drugs, and they're good for abdominal pain, particularly in the cyclical vomiting syndromes, the cannabis hyperemesis syndrome, uh, those kinds of things. So if you have that, then those may be good options. Now, don't snow somebody with haloperidol and droperidol, right? These small doses uh, for it, but they do seem to be really helpful in those really stubborn nausea and, uh, and vomiting cases. When you had appendicitis, what did you want? If you could have like picked any med, what did you want? Um, so for me, uh, the fentanyl worked better than the morphine did for sure. But I think that that comes down to dosing. I think the problem with morphine is that we tend to underdose. So we get used to this four milligram IV morphine, which for a dude my size, I mean, you know, 95, I'm approaching 100 kilos. You know, four milligram dose is is, is small, but we get used to that. And, and uh, you know, in the ER, I see this quite a bit, like... We give four milligrams of morphine, like, oh, this is working, we give it again. Okay, we give four milligrams of morphine, and we're only barely approaching the, the appropriate weight-based dose. And they're like, well, it's not working. Can we switch to something else? Sure, give a milligram of Dilaudid uh, or hydromorphone, and the weight-based dose for that is 0.015 milligrams per kilogram. So when you're giving somebody a milligram of hydromorphone, you're probably closer to the appropriate weight-based dose with that than you were with just a four milligram stock dose of morphine. But the fentanyl is very effective and, and, uh, it works well in the pre-hospital setting. It's great. The problem is that it doesn't last very long and in the hospital setting. I want to give them something that's going to last quite a while. So they're not like constantly the pain comes back and yeah. they're banging on the nurse call button and it's, you know, they have to go do more stuff. So, you know, I, I like something that's going to last longer for them once we're in the hospital setting. What I absolutely do not accept is when folks say, well, we don't want to give you any, any pain medicine because we don't want to mask the exam. That is utter horse. So do not do that. Treat their pain. Like it does not affect the exam in a meaningful way. And there's literature on this that shows that, that, okay, well, does it affect the exam? Does it change what you're doing? No. Mm -hmm. So be compassionate. Treat, you treat their pain. Do it early on. And don't worry about like, well, then I can't get a good exam. Like it just utterly ticks me off and emergency physicians will say that to EMS like well you get morphine now I can't examine the belly like oh shut up that's ludicrous you mentioned uh, giving blood for 
you know, GI bleeds or perforated things? Where does TXA fit into medical bleeding? Excellent question. So there was a recent study on TXA and GI bleeds showed really no benefit to it. You know, TXA with traumatic bleeding, which there's a fair amount of literature that, that does support that, not so much in like the GI bleed realm or the, the abdominal aneurysm or thoracic dissection realm. You know, is it going to be harmful? No, I don't think it's going to be harmful. But the other thing is you got to do it within a certain time period of the bleeding starting. And with GI bleeds, that can be really difficult to eke that out. Uh, so, yeah, I hold off on the TXA now, especially in light of the more recent study that showed that it wasn't particularly helpful. The question is disposition, observation versus imaging. So if you have you know, versus a, you know, aggressive management, and there is a role for observational abdominal pain management. So this we a lot of times we'll, like we'll do this whole workup on somebody. We don't find anything like we don't find something that tells us, oh, this is what's going on this is exactly it. And so we'll we'll send them home or we'll sit them in the hospital and observe them and just do serial abdominal exams for patients. And we see this now because we do a lot more telemedicine here in Austin for EMS. Uh, so we have somebody who's got like really completely normal vitals, like a very reassuring exam, a very reassuring history. And they're like, well, can we stay home? And okay, that's, a, that's not unreasonable. If you have a reasonable person that has good access to, to medical care, that has good access to the 911 system, not going to get lost to follow up that it's okay to give it a few hours to kind of see where, see where things pan out. And we do this, this non-operative observation of abdominal pain all the time, like the suspected appendicitis. Oh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if they have appendicitis or not. Like everything's so far. The exam's kind of concerning, but the, CAT scan's okay. You know, labs aren't terrible. And like, all right, we'll just we'll watch them and we'll check them in 12 hours and uh, see see where their exam is. With the caveat that if anything gets worse, you spike a fever, the pain worsens, then call us back and, and mm-hmm. we'll then take another look at you. So uh, there certainly is a role for observation with abdominal pain or just general abdominal issues like nausea, vomiting, diarrhea in the right population, the right low-risk population with good vitals, good exam, reliable, all that stuff, then that might be a way to go. This is not just a, like, I don't feel like taking you to the hospital, like, yeah, just go see your doctor or whatever. No, you got to have you know, a good feeling of what's going on and a good plan moving forward, one that the patient fully understands. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Pickett. Thank you, Professor Locke. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a pleasure. It's great to see you again. It's I, you to know, see you too. Sorry, this, you know, like all of these things, like pandemic and the everything else, just oh, deployment. Just, it has kept us away and kept us for doing this. Let's um, do it again soon. Oh, I'd love to. All right. All right. We'll see you. Bye, Tiger. Bye. Out. This episode of Medic Mindset is supported by iSimulate. From the very beginnings of this podcast, I've been committed to keeping Medic Mindset always and forever free. Their support allows me to do that. Thank you, iSimulate. Every episode of the Thinking Series showcases an artist within our ranks. The artist who captured abdominal pain in a custom piece for this episode is Mo Pitzer. They create these great digital collages as a way of processing their calls. Go check out this art and art from other episodes under the Artist tab at MedicMindset.com. I know they're not for her, but... I don't know what this means. Thank you for reminding me that the entire ASAP tactical section now thinks that I like My Little Pony dolls thanks to Dave Calloway, MD. Uh, Professor Dave Calloway. Wait, this is my show. uh, Oh, yeah, it is. Well, now, you know, you got the headset. I don't have a headset. I feel like I need that. I did offer you uh, a headset. You did. You absolutely did. And it's my fault. But you're wearing it. Now I feel left out. I feel weird. There you go.
Well, I'm going to do these. Do you, have two, you have two headsets. Well, no, I mean, we both need to have like this kind of headset. If why? We do that. So we look like John Madden and Pat Summerall. That's why. You uh, and your theatrics. 